I know we've been praying a bit, but if it's okay, I might pray again just before before I begin. Our loving Father, we thank you that you haven't left us uh, orphaned. You've given us your spirit and you've given us your word. And we pray that you would be at work in us this morning, that you would transform our hearts and minds, that we would meet with you, that we would learn more about you, that our hearts would be lifted up to you, that would be shaped into the likeness of your son. Just meet with us, take these words as, as feeble as they are and, and take them and use them, I pray. Amen. When I, um, when I first started following uh, Jesus, my experience of God, I think I would say it was like immediate, powerful and constant. I was a teenage boy that um, hadn't read much more than the back of a cereal packet in about five years at that point, just wasn't really into reading and yet I found myself like under the covers with a flashlight reading the New Testament into the wee hours of the morning. There was just something about it that that gripped me, something that excited me profoundly, something that that it hit me, that that God was there with me in it. Uh, The church I was a part of, that I'd kind of been dragged along to up until that point, was by no means kind of hip and modern. Like, we, we sung a whole range of songs that would be considered outdated by a lot of church's standards, everything from hymns from actual hymn books through to choruses from the 70s and 80s, you know, with the words up on the, on the overhead projector. Like, can everyone remember when all worship music was either a hymn or a chorus? I don't know if that was just my church, but that's what it is. Like, and, and even on special occasions at my church, we would have someone leading worship who could actually sing. Like, that was a really, uh, really special Sunday. It wasn't hip or kind of modern or with it by most people's standards, and yet it didn't matter. Like, there was fire in the words. It did not matter how old the song was or how poor the music was. As I was there in that phase of my Christian walk, God was there profoundly and amazingly. And not just in those moments, everyday life as well. From from the moment I woke up and got ready and got on the bus and went to school and came home throughout every single moment of the day, it was almost a palpable physical presence of God alongside me, encouraging, convicting, guiding in each of these moments and just all these answers to prayer and coincidences that couldn't be coincidences happening over and over. This is how this first phase of my Christian walk was. It was an experience of a profound presence of God. And then as time went on, I entered a new phase. And this phase wasn't defined by uh, presence and fullness, it was defined by absence and lack. Whereas before I, I couldn't put the Bible down, now when I came to it, it, it felt boring and, and difficult and confronting and just like weird and it didn't click. Those very same songs that just a year earlier was like fire in my soul was now nothing but vain repetition like it just felt like there was nothing there whereas before when I was stressed or sad or anxious I would go to God in prayer and have this sense of like uh, assurance and security and love in this phase when I turned to God in prayer at these times there was nothing When this phase came to an end and I started to be aware of the presence of God again and I was very happy for that, I felt like I had conquered the most difficult thing I would face in my Christian walk. Little did I know. 
a few years later, there was another phase, and this one was perhaps even harder. You see, by this stage, life wasn't going exactly how I thought it was meant to. Like, God and I had a deal. I would do my best to be faithful to him. I knew I couldn't be perfect, but I'd do my best. I'd go into ministry. I would work for him. You know, I'd direct it all towards that. And in return, he would bless what I was doing. Like, I didn't want to be rich. I didn't want to be famous. I didn't even particularly want to be that comfortable even. I just really wanted to see my work, like, bearing fruit. I wanted to see people transformed and amazing things happening. And I felt like God wasn't living up to his end of my bargain. And it was my bargain. (laughs) It was a very disorientating time. This is what my identity was tied up in, and it was, it was tough to work through that, these questions of whether I had put my faith in the right place, whether God really would do and could do what I thought that he would do and could do, whether I could trust him or not. And again, what probably made this time as kind of soul-crushing as it was even harder is, to be completely honest, and we are being honest here, when I turned to God, just looking for a sign, just, just a little something to assure me that I wasn't on the wrong path, uh, a coincidence that would happen or a feeling, when I turned to him in that time for that, for the longest time, once again, nothing. I, I share these stories not to depress you, but because, you know, in, in my research for this message, um, what I found out, I'm pretty confident that at least half of you, maybe even more, would have had experiences like this. You would have gone through phases like this that when you dig down and you start to ask around, you discover it's actually quite common for the Christian walk to go through times where you feel a profound absence of God, where you have these moments where your soul feels heavy and burdened and it feels like he isn't helping you out there. These times about, and maybe you didn't know what it meant or what to do about it. That's where, why I share these stories and, and why we bring this message. I think we need someone or something to help us to understand what these times are about and what to do. And I would suggest there's perhaps no better guide for us in how to understand and navigate these times than a figure by the name of St. John of the Cross. John was born in 16th century Spain. When he was two, his father died and his mother came from poverty. So the whole family was thrown into poverty. But rather than crushing his spirit, John grew into an incredibly faithful, generous, loving young man. As a teenager, he would spend his time in hospices and hospitals, being with the sick and the poor and the infirm and helping them out. Later in life, when a a rich and generous benefactor helped to put him through his study, he would end up becoming a Carmelite monk. Like, this was his dedication and his faithfulness. It it was amazingly impressive that he would do this. He would take vows of chastity and poverty to dedicate his life towards God and towards serving the poor. And as impressive as that is, it gets even more impressive. Uh, He didn't just join the Carmelite order. He went about reforming it. He went about making it better, better at serving the poor, more directed towards the poor, more directed towards a love of God and less to a love of self. Unfortunately for John, there were some monks in the Carmelite order who were pretty happy with the way things were. 
I know that you would be really un, unfamiliar with this sort of concept of, of a change happening in a Christian organization and people resisting it. Um, but they were very unhappy with it, so unhappy that they ended up imprisoning him in a cell a little larger than a closet, a wooden, I mean, sorry, stone with just a, a little, little glimmer of light coming through the top, uh, uh, freezing cold in winter, boiling hot in summer, three meals a day, that was a week, sorry, three meals a week, that was all, water, bread and sardines. And they imprisoned him in there for nine months. Nine months in this tiny little cell. Nine months of physical pain and torment. And again, what was most difficult about this for St. John is that when this incredibly faithful man, as faithful as you could expect any person to be, turned to God, in those moments he didn't feel assurance or uh, help or salvation. He felt nothing. He wrote this poem directed to God. Where have you hidden, beloved? Why have you wounded my soul? I went out to the wilderness calling for you, but you were gone. O shepherds keeping your watch in the hills, if by chance you meet with my love, tell him I suffer in my lonely grief, and soon I will die. But I have searched for my love in the mountains. I have searched among the meadows and the fields. He has poured out a thousand graces in them, so my heart might be healed, yet my heart is not healed. I have searched for my love in the mountains. I have searched for my love among the meadows and the fields. He has poured out a thousand graces in them so my heart might be healed. Yet my heart is not healed. Where have you hidden, beloved? Why have you wounded my soul? I went out into the wilderness calling for you, but you were gone. Yes, uh, perhaps if there's any figure in the history of the church that understands this feeling of God's absence, it's St. John. But here's the amazing thing is as St. John reflected on these times, these times of the absence of God, which he would start to call the dark nights, the dark nights of his Christian journey. He discovered something amazing. He discovered that in these dark nights and through these dark nights, he grew as a person. He became more Christ-like. And what's more than that, through these, he grew in his capacity to know and to love God and he concluded something amazing that in these times when God felt so absent in fact he was closer than he had ever been before so God understands us he knows us really well he knows that at what, no matter what physical age we start to follow him and engage with him we're like spiritual children and as spiritual children, we only really know how to engage with um, people and understand things through our senses, through our sight, our touch, our smell, our taste. That's how we operate. And so even though God is spirit, even though God is greater than all these things, even though God is not a body that can be touched or he's not a sense of emotions, in order to reach down to us on our level, in order to come to us so that we might understand he's there, he limits himself, he manifests himself as feelings, as emotions, as encouragement. He does these things in in worship and prayer and Bible reading and all these things so that we might know he is there. To use the uh, metaphor that 
St. John uses, it's as if God is a perfectly clear pane of glass. But so we, in our childlike state, might see that he's there, he smudges himself up. I can see you've got that happening with the door there. There must be some kids around here. Uh, kind of reducing himself, manifesting himself as feelings so that we might know he is there. But then as these feelings start to fade, as happens as human beings, God allows them to fade away. He allows us to enter into what St. John calls a dark night of the senses, a period where we can't feel God's presence. Not because he has removed himself from us entirely, but because he is inviting us into a deeper union with him, inviting us to experience him as he really is, not to experience an emotion he produces, not to experience a warmth he produces, not to experience an image he projects, but to encounter him as himself. But here's the thing, as humans, physical things, when we look at God who is pure spirit, without anything else in the way, any emotion, anything like that, he appears to be nothing. It's as if he's cleaned the window so we can see him as he truly is. But when we look at the window, it's perfectly clear we can't see anything there. It's like when you're sitting in the room with someone you you love and you're not there for the feeling they give you or for how they make you happy or anything like that. You're just there purely with them. And the union is so profound in that moment, it's no feeling at all. You're just there with them. This is what St. John calls the dark night of the senses. He teaches us, though, that God isn't done with us there, that there's another step, there's something else that can happen in our Christian walk. As we grow from spiritual childhood to spiritual adolescence, I suppose you might want to call it. Something happens that often happens to us in our physical adolescence as well. We enter into a a crisis of identity. You know, as children, we put on the faith of our parents, we put on the faith of our church, of our friends, and everything like that. And then comes a moment where we have to decide whether it's actually ours. It comes a moment where we have to decide whether we actually believe this, whether it actually is a part of who we are in our innermost being. And God could shortcut that process by giving us a sign or something miraculously out of heaven or something like that, but God often doesn't do that. He lets us enter into what St. John calls a dark night of the soul, a period of disorientation, a period where we are questioning who we really are and who God really is and how we interact with him. If the purpose of the dark night of the senses is that we would grow to love God, not for the feeling he gives us, but for himself, then the purpose of the dark night of the soul is that we might be shorn of the unhealthy attachments we have. When, when we're spiritual teenagers, we act like teenagers. We can be a little self-centered. I don't know if you know any teenagers. Um, and, and, and we know that 80, like 80% of the reason why we engage with God is because of what God can give us. We like the, the nice feeling of having a faith locked in and all we understand what the world's like and that makes us feel good. The idea that God could provide blessing, the idea that God could give us a sense of purpose. In this dark night of the soul, it's, it's all up for grabs. 
It's this moment where God calls us into a deeper faithfulness, a deeper union with him, where we attach ourselves not to the blessings that God could provide, but to God himself, where we learn not just to trust our faith, but trust him himself. It's a funny thing about dark nights. Uh, The couple I've gone through, I came out the other end so much better. I came out the other end with a far more profound love for God. I came out the other end with such a deeper and richer faith. I actually cannot imagine what I would be like without those dark nights. It's led to some of the most profound growth and understanding of God I've ever experienced. But they were so unpleasant. (laughs) They were so unenjoyable so disorientating, so tough, that I'd have a really hard time wishing them on anyone. And they're not as kind of neat and linear as I've displayed here. The dark night of the senses and the dark night of the soul, all throughout history, Christians have found them maybe coming and going at different times or in different orders. It's, it's disorientating, it's painful, and often they can come at times of great grief or dis, uh, dis, um, uh, grief and pain and struggle they can be so tough that I'm convinced that God doesn't bring them on himself, but that he does make use of them. If you're going through a dark night at the moment, I feel for you. Like They are not pleasant. More than anything else, my encouragement is for you to find someone that you can walk along with. Find someone who loves you dearly who doesn't just see you as a project to be fixed, (laughs) something to be answered to make themselves feel better about the world, but someone who loves you immensely and loves Jesus and will be with you and will sit with you in the middle of the darkness. But if that seems a bit far off and you don't know who that would be, I do have a couple of quick tips maybe to end on if you're in the middle of a dark night. The first is this, and like I'm going to try my best to get this across. If part of your dark night is around um, kind of an intellectual doubt and you want to pursue truth, like do so, pursue that truth. But know that pursuing truth is hard and you've got to keep on going and you've got to keep on pushing through. There's this saying, I don't know if you've heard it, a little bit of philosophy will lead you away from God and a lot will bring you back. And I think the reason for that is because whether we know it or not, we all have beliefs about God and the world that are just wrong. Like we don't grow up, we're not born amazing philosophers with everything perfectly lined up. Some of the assumptions our culture and our world and our education system holds about the way the world functions don't line up with God. So maybe when you start exploring this and you start pursuing this, the first thing you notice is all the ways you're wrong. And it starts pointing out all these beliefs that just don't line up, don't fit, don't quite make sense. And if you stopped there, you'd be left concluding that there is no God or he is not good. I encourage you to keep on going, keep pushing through. I assure you that there is greater truth on the other side. It's a tough process. It means... Uh, laying, uh, reworking some of those things that you believe before that aren't quite right, but keep on making your way through, and I promise you, you will find God there. This has been my experience when I faced intellectual doubt. 
a period of pain as I've realized I didn't quite have it right of questioning whether that meant that there is no God or not. But when you push through, you do find something greater. Like, I don't know if you're there at the moment, but I'm just, I have more reason to doubt that you're all in this room. I have more reason to doubt that I'm not just in the matrix or like a head in a vat and some scientist is experimenting on me. I have more reason now to doubt that than I doubt the existence and goodness of God. I have more reason to doubt a hundred and one, a thousand and one things that have happened in history than I have to doubt that Jesus has risen from the dead. And if you can push through to that, those three things, God exists, God is good, Jesus has risen from the dead, then your whole world can be a mess. There can be a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense. You're not sure what fits in. But if you can hold to those three things, then you'll make it through. My second piece of advice is this, is continue to abide. We heard it in that passage, that if you are in the vine and you're producing fruit, you will be pruned. If you feel like you're getting pruned, if you feel like you're in the middle of the dark night, it is almost certainly not because you've done something wrong or because God has walked away from you or you from him. It's because you're in the right place. It's because you've been faithful. So follow the advice Jesus says and do your best to abide. Maybe at this time, there's a whole bunch of different ways of of being around God that you struggle with. If there's just one or two that work for you still at this time, go ahead with those. Continue to be with the church. Continue to be in the room. Even if that time, all you can do is just be around the faith of others, then continue to do that. That would be your abiding in that time. My, my third and final little piece of advice slash encouragement is this, uh, to take heart. If you can remember those times early on when, it, you know, you couldn't help but stumble over God. You'd sing a song and you were just caught up into his life and he was just so profoundly there. But now it's not happening. Uh, now when you sing or you pray, it just feels like there's an absence Again, it's almost certainly not because God's actually gone. He might be revealing more of himself to you. You might be sitting with him in the room. And you're not just stopping at the emotion he gives you or the feeling he does or the way he makes you feel nice or the blessings he gives you, but you might be, for the first time, meeting with him as himself. You're not a failure. (laughs) <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't something un, unpredictable or unforeseen or horrible. This might just be God drawing you into the greatest union you've ever experienced with him. We're going to share in a time of communion now. Do you know what I love about communion more than anything else? Is it, it, it doesn't care about where your beliefs are at at the moment. I know that sounds a bit weird. Let me try and explain It doesn't care about where your feelings are at the moment. Jesus' invitation isn't come and have amazing belief. Come and have really good feelings about me. It's come and eat. There are times in our walk where our response to God and our act of faithfulness, it, it can't really be much more than that than just come and eat. That is our response to him that is our pouring out of faithfulness to him
night before um, he died, when the hour came, Jesus took his place at the tables with his apostles, his friends with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the loaf of bread. Thanks, Carly. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm about to pray for the emblems and then invite you to to go up and partake of communion in your own time. And and there might be a whole bunch of different places you're at to do that. You might be very aware of God's presence with you and overflowing with joy joy, and it's just a great response to him and and you love that time. Or or maybe you're in the middle of a dark night and, and all that is required of you at the time is just to do that thing, just to take and eat. And be assured if you take and eat, Jesus is with you even if you can't feel it at this time. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the, for the cup and the bread. We thank you that you died for us, that you came here and you gave us love and joy and grace. And when we rejected that, when we did the most horrible thing that could be imagined, you didn't attack us, you didn't fight back, but instead you chose to forgive and take that upon yourself. If you love us that much, then what can separate us from you? If you love us that much, then what can be against us? Please bless these emblems and bless this time as we communion with you. In your name we pray. Amen.